Hey, it's JV. Due to its length, this episode of Beyond Reality Paranormal will be offered in two parts. Our guest, Michael Horn, is the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer UFO ET contact story. This is an important story. The first part of the discussion is featured here today, and the second part will follow in the next podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. We're looking forward to a great discussion tonight with Michael Horn. Michael is uh, unique in the sense that he is the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer Contacts. If you have followed the UFO story, the alien contact story, you have heard of Billy Meyer. And if you haven't heard of Billy Meyer, be prepared to be amazed. Billy Meyer's story is one of the most amazing of all alien contactee, alien um, exposure, ET, uh, UFO, all of the above. Billy Meyer's story is legendary. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And again, we'll talk with Michael Horn. He is the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer Contacts. As always, I encourage you to visit us on YouTube if you have not found our YouTube channel yet. It's very simple. Go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. The channel's name is J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal easy to find and subscribe when you do find it also find our podcast version of the show it's available on all major podcast distribution points apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher and others and uh, that the name of the show is beyond paranormal um beyond reality paranormal excuse me so we've got a lot of great stuff and we're going to go to break and when we come back we'll bring michael horn in and we'll have this conversation tonight and we'll get started talking about the billy meyer ufo alien contactee story it's an amazing Amazing story, complete with photographs and more. That's all ahead here on Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for being with us tonight. I'm very, very excited about the discussion we're about to have tonight. We talk to a lot of people, but rarely do we get an opportunity to talk to someone with as much knowledge and as much experience with what we're about to uh Call uh, the most amazing and probably most convincing ET contact and UFO contact stories that we've ever heard. And of course, I'm talking about the Billy Meyer story. Tonight, we're talking with Michael Horn. Michael is the authorized American media representative for the Billy Meyer contacts. Michael, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you here tonight. Well, Jamie, thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here, really. You know, most people who have done any work and have followed discussions about UFOs, extraterrestrials, aliens, contacts, whatever it happens to be, have heard about the Billy Myers story. But there are those that don't know what that story is. And I think they're about to be amazed. But to start this conversation off, why don't you give us an idea? Just tell us a little bit about Billy. Who's Billy? Sure. Um, Billy Meyer is a now 83-year-old man living in Switzerland. He, is, he has one arm. He lost his arm, his left arm, in a bus accident in 1965. He claims that since he was a five-year-old boy growing up in rural Switzerland, he, he's been having ongoing, still ongoing, face-to-face voluntary contact with human beings from another star system. Over the years, he has come forward intermittently with evidence and uh, it provoked quite a bit of controversy, and I could just say at this point, there is so much evidence to go over, to talk about, to question, to challenge, that anybody who's really interested in that topic of UFOs, extraterrestrials, uh, will probably find the Meyer case to be simply the most compelling, because quite frankly, it's the only one that has evidence that I'm aware of, and the evidence is abundant, it's 
clear as day. It's been independently analyzed by experts since 1978. And we can go on and on with that, but I, I prefer to find out what you think is going to be most interesting uh, to talk about. And, and Billy, of course, is really interesting to talk about. Well, give us a sense of how often these contacts have been taking place and whether they've remained consistent. If he started being contacted at age five, uh, and he's 83 now, obviously we're talking about 78 years ago or so. And uh, if the evidence, well, let's talk about that first. How often has Billy had this contact and does it remain consistent throughout his entire life? Well, yes. Um, Let's start with his contacts began Again, we can say in the beginning, just for the sake of objectivity, sure. according to the information in the case, there are any number of things that precede my own involvement and the, even the involvement of the investigators who preceded me. But uh, there's been plenty that's happened that I've been able to you know, personally uh, examine and vet in terms of information and evidence. So he began these contacts, if you will, when he's five years of age, and the first contacts are said to have been with a man named Svath, S-F-A-T-H. And Svath would be a um, extraterrestrial human being from the race of beings that are called the Pleiaren, formerly known as the Pleiadians, which was really just a screen name that was created and especially intended for use in the early years of the, you know, of these contacts because, as Meyer was told by the, you know, the extraterrestrials, there are, as Meyer knew, no Pleiadians because there's no life in the Pleiades. So when people start to come forward after you have made your uh, material known in the world and you're going to, you know, they're saying to him, you're going to have a certain amount of, you know, notoriety and what have you. But then many people are going to start claiming that they are in contact with us, that they are... Uh, channeling us, all sorts of things. And as soon as somebody says, Pleiadians, you're going to know that they're not telling the truth. So that was a little device built in back in 1975. And that 1975 period was really when Meyer began his, um, oh gosh, third set of contacts, was the third contact person whose name was said to be Semyaze, a female, uh, as one of the other uh, previous contact people had been. When Meyer was 16, he began the contacts with a woman named Esket, who was of a different race, but a race that we are told works closely with the play iron race. So it's almost like here we could get into you can't tell the players without a scorecard, but I don't want to get it. <laughs> I don't want to make it too complicated. So he starts having the contacts age five for 11 years with Svav, at age 16, 11 years with Asket. And then in 1975, he starts to have these, what are called the official contacts. The reason they're called the official contacts is they would contain most of the information and most of the evidence that would make this case known worldwide and would carry forth into our world not only the best physical evidence, but the most important informational evidence as well. So his contacts, while there were periods of time when he might not have had contacts for a while, maybe it was weeks or months, they always resumed, and they do continue to this day. When we talk about the word contact, are we talking about physical contact? In other words, these uh, beings presented themselves to Billy, had conversations in person, or were they some type of electronic contact, visual contact, something else? Sure, good question. What happened was, starting when he's five, uh, Billy Meyer and his father observe a silver disc flying in the sky. He doesn't know what it is, certainly at five, and his father theorizes that it might be a device made by Hitler towards the end of that war, but he didn't know. It's shortly thereafter that Meyer actually hears a voice. He, he, he hears a man speaking to him in his head. Five-year-old boy, he's not used to that. It's a bit complicated. But he uh, goes and he actually confides in the parish priest, who was somebody who had also had 
and young Meyer didn't know this, but he was drawn to speak to this man who had also been in telepathic contact with these people. So his first contact, if you will, is hearing a voice speaking to him in his head. It's only a short period of time later that he feels compelled while he's out playing to go deeper into the woods. He's being raised in beautiful rural Switzerland. And there he sees an elderly man in what he describes as a deep sea divers looking suit, standing next to a pear shaped craft that's on three strut like legs. That is his introduction, if you will, to this first teacher's spot. And it is at this time that he begins the face-to-face conversations and meetings, and shortly the on-board meetings with Svaz that would result in his uh, very, very vast education into many things, and including travel on and around our world and in different parts of our solar system as well. So it goes according to the information in the case. So he... The predominant means of his meetings are face-to-face, you know, voluntary face-to-face meetings and conversations with these people. He sometimes is notified in advance from a sensation that he feels on his forehead. So that's kind of the basics of it. Michael, the, the contacts started many years ago. They continue through today. At what point did you get involved in uh, the Billy Meyer story? Sure. Well, what happened was in 1979, I was, I was living in Los Angeles. And one day I walked into a uh, metaphysical bookstore, one that was pretty well known in the city. And I'd gone there before, you know, they have incense and books and different things. And as I entered the door, I had only taken a couple steps in when just below eye level, I saw a coffee table type book sitting on a shelf facing me. And it was uh, drawing me towards it because on the cover was a photograph, a very clear photograph, broad daylight of a UFO. Nothing fuzzy, no lights in the sky, just as clear and crisp as could be. And in the background, there was also, it looked like a jet plane that was in the distance behind it. So I got that book, opened it up, and started to look through, and it didn't take long before I had, you know, just buy it immediately, and I brought it home. Now, I would read that book and go through it for quite some time before I would come in contact with other information. But the book had not only UFO photos and information about them, but information about other types of materials, evidence in the case, means of testing of the evidence, et cetera, et cetera, and information on this man, the Swiss man, Billy Meyer. Uh, And there were different quotes throughout the book that were attributed to people with unusual names and it turned out to be the, you know, alleged extraterrestrials. In 1986, I was in a small cafe in Sedona, Arizona, when I was, uh, you know, waiting for lunch with my daughter and a friend and only one other person sitting in a far corner and we beckoned him to come and join us since nobody else was there. And before you knew it, we were speaking about things that were unusual, paranormal, if you will, UFOs, and then it's, you know, Billy Meyer comes up. Uh, and he said, well, have you read the contact reports? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's the conversations that Billy Meyer has had with all these people. And I said, no. He says, well, when you get back to L.A., come on up, and I'm going to give them to you. I went back to L.A. I went back up there, and indeed, he had 1,800 pages of transcripts. And uh, I'm going, wow, what, wow. You know, what is this all about? And they were the most, most amazing things to read. I had just never seen anything like it. It began my investigation, my deep interest into this whole story, because the information that was being communicated between the people and Meyer was fascinating. It just covered so many different areas. Then, because you, you asked me a question that's going to involve a little bit of detail, it was then two years later, I opened up a newspaper in Los Angeles, and I saw a headline that said, um, Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, new discovery, A-bond testing tied to the ozone damage. And I started to read it, and then I realized I already knew the information. Now, I'm trying to figure out, how did I know this information? So I reached under the bed, and I grabbed the first 100 pages of these transcripts, and therein, Billy Meyer is 
talking to this woman, Semyaze, and she's telling him about the damage to the ozone. And that began a series of ever-ongoing events wherein I would find that so-called new discoveries had already been reported, discussed years and decades earlier by Billy Meyer. Wow. You obviously had a, a, a curiosity that was fueled over and over again. Did you ever have experiences yourself prior to this point, or was it more the curiosity that was leading you down the path? Uh, you mean experiences, pardon me, experiences pertaining to UFOs and yes, that type of thing? Yes, exactly. Sightings yeah. or any kind of contact. Well, no, I, I won't say necessarily contact, but I, uh, ever since I was a child growing up, in the 40s and 50s in Chicago, I would dream about disc-shaped lights in the sky that were traveling about, and I had a recollection of standing underneath this disc-like object where in the, the bottom of it would rotate, and I knew already that it could travel in any direction. I, there were things that I was sensing at a young age, but I've had, uh, in my adult years, I've had seven, maybe eight sightings of UFOs, uh, I'd say four for sure were probably secret military craft. One for sure was a craft from these people when I was living up in the mountains of Brazil in 2011. And two other ones, I think, were probably from them when I was living in L.A. I've never met with these people. I haven't seen them. I never will. Uh, that's a rarity because it's really that's what's reserved for Meyer because this is, you know, a... You could call it a very, very long-range piece of work, a mission, if you will, that they regard as only involving directly this man who they worked with since he's five years old, so that whatever information or evidence they present will get you know put out there the way it is and the way it should be, and it, they're not here to you know entertain us as interesting as that would be. You mentioned uh, when in talking about Billy's contacts uh, that he was he had been contacted and met with humans, but they're extraterrestrial humans. They weren't from Earth. Uh, is right. that what they were? Were they actually are they actually humans? And are we part of the all part of the same race? Well, in effect, yes, um, they are human beings, uh, virtually only in, distinguishable from us, only probably with minor characteristics or something, but they would pass among us quite easily. They don't. There are no extraterrestrials on Earth. There are no little gray guys uh, carrying their lunch trays around under, you know, Area 51. There's a lot of disinformation that's been manufactured and promoted in the field of ufology. But as this, as far as answering this question goes, basically, they are fully human. Uh, their ancestors in the past had been here before and uh, contributed to messing us up a bit in some cases. And they have a what they call a self-obligated mission to assist us, well, basically to, to assure our own future survival, which is highly threatened. And uh, it's not even assured, to be honest with you. I did, we're going to talk a lot about uh, Billy's pictures uh, a little bit later, but there's one picture in particular that I'm curious about as it relates to what we're talking about right now. There's a picture of a seven-fingered handprint. Obviously, that's not human. It is actually human. Um, oh, it's it funny you mention that because uh, those photographs came about because I got a call from a production company in London. It may have been, what, 2006 or so. I forget what the date is. Something like that. And uh, they asked if they could interview Billy, and they only wanted to talk to him for about 15 minutes. They heard about him and all that. And I said, well, I'm going to be over there, you know, at such and such a time. Let me check with, with Billy and see if he's interested in an interview. And he said, oh, sure, of course. So this crew came over to do the 15-minute interview. And after about an hour and a half of that 15-minute interview in his office, somebody came in, one of his friends, and said, Billy, why don't you show them the handprints? And he said, oh, yeah, okay, the handprints. So we went out to the parking lot, and he has a stepson who was living uh, on this property with them at the time who had a silver, I believe, Subaru station wagon. And uh, it was also, I think, an earlier model, maybe 90s, early 2000s. And on that wagon, and this is, as you know now, I'm sure, uh, freely available to view on my uh, website, there were these handprints 
on the hood primarily, and not only handprints, but a couple of them went all the way up, yeah, uh, to, um, where did he go, up to the elbow even. So Billy put his hand down on the hood uh, next to uh, two of the seven-fingered handprints. And we, you know, we photographed them, and we, I think we might have even included that in our film. I'm not sure. Um, and it was, uh, the, you know, it was very weird. So people asked him, because they, they were examining them. I mean, I put my nose right down there on the car to look, what, are these painted on or what? But no, no, the papillary lines were etched right into the finish of the car. And uh, so later we got to asking him about it, and he said, well, this is a race of very they're short-statured human beings, and uh, they are a, a race that uh, works in conjunction with the race that Billy, you know, is in contact with the play arm. And because there is an ongoing uh, monitoring of the property there by the uh, extraterrestrials, uh, not coming down to monitor, but monitoring in craft remotely, uh, for just to kind of uh, look in and assure some safety for Meyer, because there have been so many attempts in his life. Well, the play Aaron were going to be away from their duties pertaining to Billy for a period of time. And this race had, there were two people. Uh, the race was called, I believe, Trilaner. And they were going to take over for the play Aaron and do the night watch, if you will. And on one of those evenings, I guess they had a, kind of a capricious sense of humor. They came down because the chemistry, their body chemistry is different than ours, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it kind of produces a corrosive effect if they touch certain things. Billy was introduced to that before this event when he was on uh, the large craft with the uh, play Aaron because uh, they, these people were there, and Billy wanted to go over and shake hands with one of them, and the man who was the father of Semyaze said, um, don't do that. I don't recommend that because it's, you know, might not be too pleasant. And Billy said, well, okay, but can we like just touch the fingertips here? You know, he said, oh, of course, there's no problem with that. And then Billy reported later, he said, you know, my, my, my finger burned for about a week. It was just a very strange thing. Hmm. And so they put their hands and even, you know, a couple of their forearms down on the car. And it wasn't the only car there. They, uh, I, when I've been over to the center, there subsequent to that, I've seen some of the handprints in a couple of other cars, and it's kind of like, hi, we're here, you know, just thought we'd play a little joke on you. And there's a woman named Linda Moulton Howe, I'm sure you're familiar with sure, her. Sure, of course, yeah. Right? And she has said um, to me at a point, she got in touch with me, oh, can we come over, can I bring some scientists to examine the car? And I asked her, he said, well, of course, but just don't destroy the thing. Well, she naturally didn't come over because she's chasing imaginary alien abductions and cow mutilations from the military. Uh, so she wasn't really interested in putting the, uh, you know, the whole thing to a test, which is not unusual because a lot of people prefer to chase things that don't exist rather than things that do. This is this is fascinating. And one of the things I find very striking is the way you described the interview with Billy and how you brought up the photographs and very nonchalantly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me show. He sounds like he's a very, very unassuming and, and, and that this is just par for the course for Billy and Billy's life. Well, you're actually right. Billy is probably one of the most. How to, it's a hard word to try to describe it. He's just a normal person. I guess that's the way you say it. You never get to, you would never know that, like, I've come in to meet with him in his office sometimes when perhaps 40 minutes before that, either the play Aaron were in his office with him or he was on the ship with them. He's, UFOs are of no interest to him because it's something that he experienced from childhood on. And it's part of what this is, and he understands that people are fascinated. And he wasn't even that interested initially in taking photos of the craft, but he understood that that was, you know, kind of an important thing to do. That would provide evidence for people. That would, uh, you know, was part of the agenda. So he did it. But you'd find that he, he's unassuming. Uh, he certainly has all the, you know, the natural emotions. I've seen him yell at people. I've seen him laugh. I mean, just a person. And a very patient person, I might add. I also, what I noticed early on even was he treats everybody in a similar manner. Now, that doesn't mean he's dismissive. 
it means that when you're talking to him or you're with him, he's fully present for you. And I kind of, you know, like that because I see him that way with everybody. Other people come here because he always is willing to answer questions for people or explain things and, you know, to go to even to great lengths to be present for that. Now, he has his own private time and all the rest of it, but this is just a very dedicated human being, a very decent man. Um, you know, there are people that say, oh, this is a culture. So I, what are you talking about? Have you ever been there? <laughs> Nobody's falling down to Bill. They, they, he, he's got a group of people that help him with the publishing and everything. There's, I don't know, 30-some people involved altogether. And they make their decisions collectively, so Billy has one vote. And if people outvote him, he doesn't get to prevail with whatever the thing is. It's not like it's a big battle all the time, but they're a very animated group. You know, they're, It's just an interesting environment of people who are working towards one common goal, to bring information to people, to bring the spiritual teaching to people, to help people figure out a lot of questions and issues. So I might have over-explained that answer, but he's a good guy. Yeah, no, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, how and where Billy lives. And I know he's in Switzerland, so and he's, he's lived there all his life, right? Well, with the exception of his travels, which were actually rather expensive, he's been through, uh, and this is going back mainly to the 50s and 60s, he traveled through about 42 different countries on foot, hiking, oh, wow. catching yeah, and he worked his way around. He never did a, uh, you know, like, uh, take care of me, I'm a you know, special guy, because in those early years, people knew nothing about him, really, uh, until they found out that he had taken 80 UFO photos by the time 1964 came around. That's another story. But um, he uh, he traveled extensively, hundreds of thousands of miles, of, you know, around, and uh, just... Uh, has lived a most remarkable life in many, many ways. Just a really unusual and remarkable life with huge, great, wonderful things and some really dreadful things. I mean, if you're told 10 years in advance that your left arm is going to be ripped off your body mm. and that there's nothing that's going to be done with it. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's like, sorry, but this is your destiny. We could do certain things, but we're not allowed to do other things. So it's, it's an amazing story. Did he have a, a vocation, a trade, a, a particular education that um, he may have brought to uh, brought to this discussion, or was it completely irrelevant? Well, no. What happened was, you know, he, he had maybe up to sixth grade formal education. When he was 16, uh, he had experienced a lot of trouble in his own, uh, you know, little town. Remember, that would mean for, for 11 years he's meeting with an extraterrestrial and going on board a craft. He, he was living clearly in at least two worlds. So he had issues and stuff. So he ran away at 16 to the French Foreign Legion. Oh, wow. And he stayed there for a while to learn how to do certain things, but then determined that it really wasn't for him because he didn't want to become a killer. He learned certain skills, uh, learned how to handle weapons and all the rest. But he... Um, then in his, his travels around the world where he's going about and he's, uh, you know, studying and traveling, he works his way around by taking many, many, I think they said he took over 320 or 30 different jobs and occupations. I mean, he, everything, you can imagine he was a snake charmer. He was a private detective. He, uh, I think he tutored people in Greek or something. And he was a, uh, you, you just, I mean, the guy did, any and everything to carry his own weight so that he could support himself as he traveled around. And uh, just a wide array of tasks he was with. For a time, he spent time with some Jordanian desert fighters. <laughs> There's a photograph of that. Uh, I mean, he just, he's, if you know that movie Zelig with Woody Allen, who yeah. appears everywhere, right. I mean, there's Billy. He's, he's with uh, King... Uh, King Hussein's royal guard in, in Jordan, and then he's in the, with the freedom fighters out in the desert, and then he's with a, a Polish uh, prince or count and another guy somewhere in uh, outskirts of Jerusalem. I mean, just the most amazing stuff. He's been virtually everywhere. And as he was traveling the world, was he still receiving these contacts, or was, what, was that happening during one of the periods of less activity? Well, actually, 
actually during the, the that period of time, there were times when he definitely was having the contacts, and then other times when he was simply off. For instance, in 1964, he was traveling through India, uh, and he was on his way to study Buddhism at the uh, Ashoka Ashram in Maroli, India. And it was at that time that a couple of interesting things happened. One was that a reporter for a very prominent Indian newspaper heard about him and managed to find him and interview him. He took a photo of Meyer, so we know this happened then, and we have the newspaper article and everything. And the, uh, the it reporter was describing some of the 80 UFO photos that Meyer had in an album, 1964. Oh. And Meyer still has about a dozen or more of those photos. So we have them, and we, you know, we've shown them in our films and stuff like that. So it, it's this interesting thing. He's in India, and he's studying Buddhism, but at that same time, he's having contacts with Esket, his second teacher, and the the ships and the, and the woman, Esket, are observed by maybe a hundred of the villagers there, and a young girl who is the uh, granddaughter of the head monk of the ashram. Now, this kind of pops up again years later when she, and her name is Pogol Cheng, makes a, uh, like there's a press conference where they're showing also photographs of Myers, and she comes forward along with another Indian woman to attest to the authenticity of the photographs of Myers' contacts, to being witnesses to the ships, to be witnesses to seeing the Esket as well. And this is, you know, 1964, fast forward to 19, let's say 98 or so. So th there's just an awful lot of continuity, eyewitnesses. There have been well over, um, what do you call it? There have been well over 130 eyewitnesses to the craft. I, I'm an eyewitness to one of them. But I'm not all that hung up. I don't think the UFO part of it is nearly the most important part at all here. So, uh, but I'm glad to talk about any of it because well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I want to open that can of worms yet. But you tell me, is it a good time to talk about what the most important part of it is? Well, you know, we can. I, I, I wouldn't shy away from that, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, I got the information from this fellow. You know, that gave me all this documentation. I was reading things, and I'm finding these reports about new discoveries. And then I'm referring to these pages that I've got under my bed, 1,800 pages from 75 to 78. I go back, and those so-called new discoveries are already there. Meyer's already been told. He's published the information. And then over the years since then, along with other people, we have culled, we have found and noted over 250 specific prophetically accurate examples of scientific, environmental, geopolitical, and other information. Now, it couldn't be more important today because of the information that Meyer first published in 1995 about the first coronavirus epidemic that would come out of a lab in Guangdong province, China, and result in a lung disease. Five years later, or let's say eight years later, SARS came out of that laboratory. That's right. And they were right, right? Now, it gets juicier because what we're dealing with now with this pandemic, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the documentation that I received on February 23rd and published on the 25th, but this is nothing short of stunning. Now, I'll tell you why. Virtually every important fact, critically important fact, about this pandemic and how to control, contain, and overcome it was contained in that first document that I published on February 25th. I had actually published another document on February 20th that had more information uh, you know, pertaining to this idea of the coronavirus. I, I did a TV interview on January 23rd in San Diego where I mentioned, you know, that we had information about the coronavirus, but they, they didn't want to hear about that at the time too much. So 
but it's a matter of record. So here, let's, because you're, you're asking, you know, would this be a good time? I'm going to give you, if I may, unless you, you know, if you have another question, please, I'll, I'll certainly defer to what you'd want to uh, ask at this time. So let me find out if you prefer to go in another direction no, no, at you, this point. No, you've already started down this trail. Let's keep going. Okay, good. So I'm going to read off to you a number of points, uh, maybe 12, 13, whatever it is, and uh, I'll, we can comment on them. So first of all, we're told right away that this is a pandemic. On February 23rd, and I'm using that date because that's when Meyer received the information from the play art, this is a pandemic, and people should avoid plane ships, mass transportation, and crowds. They should stay home. February 23rd, not a week ago, February 23rd, and avoid exposing themselves to the risk of infection. They tell Meyer that the real number of infections and deaths are much higher than reported. Now, jump ahead a little. On March 19th, they told him that there were 2 million people worldwide infected already. These numbers have only recently begun to be spoken about. Now, here was an enormously important point. This disease is very often spread by asymptomatic people, people showing no symptoms whatsoever. Not only that, it's spread through the air, through the breath, through clothing, etc., etc. Most breathing masks will be useless because the virus is so small, so you have to use the medical-grade masks. And full-body protective suits with breathing apparatus are the only real full protection against the disease should you be in its proximity. Hermetic quarantines are required and must be longer than two weeks, not go home and self-quarantine or come here to the hospital and go into this room and so No, no. Hermetic, hermetically sealed quarantines, airlocks, those sliding door things. Okay. They also told them at that time, the Asian races, races were initially going to be the most susceptible, but because the disease will mutate, it's going to spread to all other races as well. This turned out to be true. And that the virus will become more aggressive over time because of these mutations. It's going to claim ever more lives. Children initially will be the mainly immune, and they will therefore, in the early stages, be the main hidden spreaders of the disease. This they told us on March 2nd, actually. They also said China and the U.S. and other countries suppress the real truth for political and economic reasons, and the World Health Organization is culpable for not immediately proclaiming a pandemic risk and seeing to it that everything is shut down in terms of international travel and all that stuff. Now, every one of those points, and I'll come back to a couple that are key, have proved to be accurate, but not all have been implemented. And last night, for instance, there was a doctor on Al Jazeera, news, uh, world news, who knows this information and came forward and said, these are the critical things that must be done to, to contain and control and stop this disease. And what are they? Well, every hospital, every medical facility that is inputting people, suspected or confirmed carriers, must have these hermetically sealed environments where all medical personnel in those units are in full hazmat level, let's just call it that, protective suits with the breathing apparatus and all. Because this thing is carried, as we said, February 23rd, in the air and on the breath, people passing in and out of regular rooms and all, if they are not wearing the kinds of equipment that can be taken off and you know secured at the hospital that way clean, they will be the carriers. The hospitals themselves become the breeding grounds and the spreading grounds for this disease. This is not the flu. This is an Ebola-level you know, pathogen. This is the real deal, in case we haven't already gathered yeah. that. <laughs> they also recently said that the world, if we're to control and contain this disease, this kind of protocol has to be instituted in all hospitals and 
the lockdown must be complete in every country, and it lasts between three to eight months, inconvenient as it may be for many or all of us. Now, if they don't maintain that, because this disease also is spread by asymptomatic people, people will get together, they think everything's fine, it only takes one person here or there, and suddenly you've got another hundred people spreading the damn thing. Yeah. It's mutating, it's there. So basically, there's more information they've given us, and all of it is always ahead of what... I published the article yesterday about the Wuhan thing because Meyer was told that's where it came from. And now that, you know, they're, you know, like you say, there's some people that have suspected that we know it. And that it came out of two different labs. It was not a deliberate release. It was released accidentally by people coming out of the lab who became carriers and who died from it. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously we all know at this point that it's a big mess, but if we go ahead with this, uh, everything is, you know, subservient to the dollar, this disease hasn't decided to leave yet. I don't want to, you know, burst anybody's bubble, but we don't determine that, certainly not the way we're handling it. And if we could have gotten it, and believe me, I've written 60 articles since February 20th. I've sent this information to every person I could think of online, news services. I spent three hours calling news stations around the country. I, I, put a, I filmed it for YouTube the last hour's worth. Nobody follows up because, of course, everybody knows better, and <laughs> they don't want to be bothered by some guy they don't know who's bothering to call them and disturb them with information that can't possibly be right because they work for news services and they know it if it was true, right? Well, no, they wouldn't. And so we have lost thousands of people due to the damn arrogance and ineptitude and incompetence of news people, scientists. And, you know, I, I sent this to Alex Jones and Joe Rogan and everybody I can think of. These people don't want this information coming out through Billy Meyer. So they will suppress it or co-opt it and claim that they published it themselves or whatever. Because once Billy Meyer is known, actually you know, when people in a broad level start looking into this man and they go, oh my gosh, uh, oh, he's telling the truth, then everything else in ufology and, pardon me, paranormal this and UFO that, it's it, no longer relevant. Here's my premise, and I've said this many times in presentations, the confirmed existence of and contact with an advanced space-traveling extraterrestrial race would be the single most important story in all of human history. Now, of course, the question would be, what's the reason for their coming and contacting somebody, anybody? But if, if not... The idea that all these people who are claiming to be contactees and experiencers, there are no UFO contactees. I've never seen evidence to support it. Now, I, you know, I'm not very popular in the UFO world because <laughs> I've come out and I've named all the names. and I've said, this person's lying, this person's lying, and I'll tell it to their faces if they'd like. Because every one of those people has been sent all of the information on Meyer that if they wanted Every one of these people has suppressed it or denied it or whatever, and they've gone on to babble about their meetings with blue avians or uh, <laughs> endless nonsense, white, great white Nordics and this, that, and the other thing. Not one piece of evidence from any UFO expert or contactee has ever been presented showing extraterrestrial manufacture of anything. And yet people... We'll interview these people or they'll go to their presentations or whatever. My gosh, it, it, it's, it's blown my mind for, for years. I, yeah. I have over 40 years of investigation yeah. research, 33 years of international presentations for uh, different uh, DVDs, another film, five or so films and all. I mean, I've, I've been in this a long time, and I'm waiting for all these guys who are making their claims to put forward one piece of evidence while they're sitting on suppressing this. MUFON suppresses this. SETI, I've sent the information. I personally told it to 
uh, Seth, whatever his name is, Shostak. Shostak, yeah. About, yeah, nine years ago or so. Guy wouldn't even talk about it. None of the SETI people would respond to it. Just yesterday, I had published uh, a whole blog about Meyer's information that preceded uh, information about Mars and other stuff. Uh, and some space, uh, oh, brain damage from space travel. Well, the, there are new studies that have come out, and all these scientists are talking about the brain damage from space travel, right? Okay, except for one thing. 39 years ago, Meyer published that information, and I sent it out yesterday to all these people, not a one of whom has responded yet. And I'll be calling them if I can find their phone numbers, only to find out that there are a bunch of quacks and phonies who want to protect their own careers at any cost, and if they, these scientists, who know everything, are going to be shown the most impressive evidence of UFO contact, volumes of information, what are they going to do? Now suddenly, this little guy up here, you know, and that little woman over there, they all know more than these guys. I personally went up a year ago. My girlfriend and I went up to the USGS in Flagstaff, Arizona, met with a guy who's heading up the Mars uh, rover project there, uh, taking photos. He's an image specialist. I brought him a few pages of Meyer's information on Mars and other things. He said, well, I'll take a look at it. I'll get back. He said, fine. He writes me back, uh, could Billy Meyer just be a good guesser? So I said, um, <laughs> Ken, no. You've got 30 different things there about Mars that are specific and absolutely correct that Billy Meyer published before you guys ever found it. That's not being a good guesser. That's being somebody who went there and who was told about it. And you guys are way behind it. Do you want to learn? Well, I hope you're not going to try to convince me this is real. I said, well, why shouldn't I? You're a scientist. You should be able then to show me why it isn't real. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. There are more quacks calling themselves scientists who simply because they can press buttons yeah. and analyze the image, they think they're scientists. So I do get a little bit bonkers with the low level of thinking in, with the scientists, with the you know, the people who claim all this stuff with UFOs and all, this is too important. This information that I just basically went over with, there's a ton more about the nature of the droplets, the breath, the weight of, I mean, stuff pertaining to COVID-19 here, that our scientists, medical people, if they would institute this, we would control, contain, and conquer the disease. Instead, they're pushing for a very premature, hey, let's just open everything up. Uh, we have to go to break here in just a minute, but I want to make sure I clear uh, clear something up or have something clarified a bit here. Uh, you you outlined very very clearly what was what was going to happen, and it it did happen in relationship to this virus. Once again, when were when was Billy getting these messages and this information, and when did you share it? Okay, sure. Actually, Meyer first started to discuss this as as best we can tell from the documents. November 12th of last year was his first conversations, then in December, then January 2nd, January 6th. Then um, they, some information was put, I, I can look at this during the break, that I published on February 20th. The, the bullet points I went over were published by them in German and then translated on February 23rd. They have been on my blog verifiably since February 25th. So he published them on, you said, February 23rd. And so did did he receive the messages at that point, or had he had them for a while and was just then sharing them? The ones that we published on the 25th that he got on the 23rd was uh, the presentation of that information on the 23rd. Okay. But some of the same information was presented to him prior to that, and we have that up too, but I can only claim publishing on the 20th and 25th, even though he had some earlier information. I can't say that I had it or published it, but this is well well enough in advance and impeccably accurate. And what they have foretold about this is going to, we could lose over 90 million people on Earth if there's a premature opening of this thing. And, you know, who, you know we're just some guys sitting around talking about it now, but the message forbid, yeah the messages have done a very good job of describing where we've ended up now and where we will in the next few weeks maybe a couple months but what does it say what do they say long term or hasn't billy gotten long term oh, yeah. information about this particular health well, problem 
there is long-term information about what's coming to us in our world in many ways. I mean, specific, term- specifically about the coronavirus. We'll get to the okay. other stuff, too. But Sure. Um, what's, what's happening, according to the latest information that I have, they are still saying they don't have a firm date that they can see when this is resolved and that so much will depend on whether or not there is a worldwide lockdown that is held in place at least for three more months, possibly as long as eight months, because of the nature of disease, the people that have been uh, infected who are still asymptomatic, all these factors. And they're saying that if we don't do that, ultimately, and this will be now for the matter, uh, matter of record, more than 90 million people may die from this. It is in every country on earth. And therefore, they say every country must lock down and they must medically implement this very high level, Ebola level protocols to contain it, control it, treat the people until we have passed the point of any more transmission and all of that. That's what the messages are telling Billy. That's what these these messages say. Three more months. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, you might get more info this week. I don't know, but we have it. It's all on my blog. People can read, and they'll see the dates when the stuff was published in Switzerland. They'll see the dates when we are, um, you know, publishing the stuff here. So I, I have early dates for me, uh, you know, February 20th and February 25th, okay. publishing you know, the crucial information. Okay, and the the blog that Michael's referring to is theyflyblog.com. Michael, is that right? That's correct. Be sure to download and listen to our next podcast, where we'll continue our discussion with Michael Horn about the Billy Meyer contact story right here on Beyond Reality. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.